All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith on a day when we got a great show coming up for you once again today, including the head of Canada's nursing unions. She's my first guest today, Linda Silas. She is standing by. We're going to talk about the latest on the front lines of the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic, including the latest on the supplies of personal protective equipment for nurses and other frontline healthcare workers. Ontario Premier Doug Ford just in the last hour said he fears Ontario will run out of supplies in a week. What about the fight with the United States on this one now? You got U.S. President Donald Trump threatening to withhold supplies of N95 masks. We'll talk about that with the head of Canada's nursing unions. She's coming up in just a moment. Also on this show today, can Canada trust China in this pandemic, especially their numbers and statistics on COVID cases and fatalities? Terry Glavin on the show today from the National Post. He is just red hot on this topic his columns in the national post and mclean's magazine have been just great he'll be on at 10 p.m also today how to apply for the canada emergency response benefit two thousand dollars a month if you have lost your job or your income from the pandemic Today is the first day to apply for this benefit. We've got an excellent segment coming up later on the show on that program and all the pandemic relief programs that have been rolled out by the federal government and also the provincial government. There has just been a tidal wave of these programs. I think for a lot of people, it's tough to keep track of them all. It's kind of a jungle out there and trying to navigate all these various programs you could be eligible for and how to apply for them, who is eligible, how much money you can get, when you'll get the money. We will talk about that and an opportunity for you to call up with your questions. That's coming up at 11 a.m. Keith Baldry, Baldry's Beat at the bottom of the hour. All that and lots more. So let's get going here right now. Linda Silas is my guest. She's the head of the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions. And I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Linda, thanks for taking the time. Good morning, Mike. A lot of people are wondering about personal protective equipment. This is one of the things that I think is top of mind, I'm sure, for all the very brave nurses that you represent across the country. We're just hearing from the Ontario Premier in the last hour here that with his concerns that personal protective equipment like masks could run out in Ontario in a week. What What is your perspective on this? I mean, I know you represent nurses across the country. Is it sort of, are the supplies kind of different from province to province, or are we all kind of in the same boat on it? Uh, we're all in the same boat, uh, especially uh, we're all in the same boat when you look at the healthcare field, because this is not a nursing issue. This is the whole team uh, that work in the healthcare field. Uh, because when you're talking health and safety, you cannot just look at one tiny little group, uh, just like the doctors or the nurses or the respiratory technician. The whole team has to be respected. The question of supply is uh, discouraging and maddening at the same time, because it's not like we didn't know this wasn't going to happen. Since SARS in 2003, uh, hundreds reports were written, recommendation, and the first one was we had to make sure we had enough supply of personal protective equipment to protect our healthcare teams. The second and probably the most important, we had to base our occupational health and safety rules on the precautionary principle, which is when the science is not 100% clear on how the virus is transmitted, we have to protect for contact, droplet, and airborne. And governments uh, across the board are ha- giving us a hard time on that. How are they giving you a hard time? Well, uh, some are uh, panicking over the supply question and are telling healthcare workers, nurses, doctors, you are only to wear uh, personal protective equipment for droplets and contacts which the science is uh, getting clear, uh, clearer, I should say, that or for certain it is trans- the COVID-19 is transmitted towards contact and droplets. And droplets are the spit, for example. What we're still examining is, is it transferred by airborne? And what the science is telling us is, It is not airborne, but it is borne by air. So that's being very technical. But it means if I'm very close to you, 
the virus can be transmitted via air. And for healthcare workers, we cannot do our jobs two meters away from our patients. So we're adamant, and that's all healthcare unions across the country, we're adamant for healthcare workers that will be working within that two meters of a patient who's suspected or uh, confirmed COVID-19, they have to have the whole uh, personal protective equipment uh, and they also have to use the professional judgment if they have to increase the personal protective equipment. Okay, I'm speaking to Linda Silas from the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions. If you wanted to protect a healthcare worker from an airborne virus, what you got to wear a ventilator or some sort of mask or something? Yeah, it's a respirator. It's called respirator. an N95. Yeah. yeah, it's called an N95. They and with the N95, it's not like when you see members of the public walking on the street with N95. Like what a waste of precious resources. You need to be trained on how to put it on, trained on how to put it off, and you need to be fitted because it has to be airtight around your face. Those are equipment that belong in healthcare facilities, not on the streets. So for the general public, if we, you want to help healthcare workers, yes, stay at home, wash your hands, and even isolate yourself when you're not feeling good, do all what public health uh, tells you. But when you're looking at equipment, keep the surgical mask, those paper medical masks, the N95, the gloves, keep that for the medical health care staff that needs them. If you want to sew your own little mask, uh, go right ahead. It will yeah. protect your family. But for the medical equipment, it needs to be in the hospital okay, and speak- the long-term care facilities too. Speaking of the N95 masks, this is the piece of personal protective equipment that I think is top of mind for so many people across the country. We are now in a dispute, Linda, with the United States, with U.S. President Donald Trump, potentially threatening to cut off supplies of this particular important piece of equipment to Canada. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, getting a lot of pressure on that. Have a listen to this. This is Trudeau talking about the uh, recent shipment of masks. We continue to have constructive and productive conversations uh, with officials in the American administration who understand uh, that essential services and supplies are very much a two-way street between Canada and the United States. Uh, We will continue to work together. We're going to make sure uh, that, that goods and services that are essential continue to flow, and I expect those shipments to come in soon. Okay, Justin Trudeau speaking this morning about the dispute with the United States over these N95 masks. Linda, first of all, let me ask you for your thoughts on uh, the American president using this as kind of a, a, a way to uh, confirm supplies for his own people in the United States and the potential of refusing to ship these N95 masks to Canada. Your thoughts? Mike, your show is not long enough for my thoughts on the president of the United States. I just heard him on the radio saying which medication should be prescribed for COVID-19. Like, really? The whole procurement of personal protective equipment is a big dossier and has to be dealt with, with those. It's a supply and demand question. And it's an ethical question, too. And I think 3M answered the ethical question. Uh, they were uh, sending some to Canada before, and now that the world is in a crisis, you won't. That's an ethical question. So the prime minister or the uh, president, uh, cannot be threatening healthcare workers uh, with the uh, the procurements of uh, PPEs. What do you think about Trudeau's response to it? There, you just heard his comments this morning. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting the way he framed it, saying that the Americans have to understand it's a two-way street, and that we send some of the raw raw materials to the United States to make mm-hmm. these products. And there's also a lot of healthcare workers, including nurses, I know who are Canadians across the border to work in the United States. And I think the last people the last thing people would like to see, want to see is some sort of trade war across the border over medical supplies when you've got a global pandemic like this. But what do you think about Trudeau's handling of it? Do you think he's being tough enough on it? I uh, I think the prime minister is being diplomatic and all due respect to the media, uh, we're making a bigger story than it is. And it's always like that when the president of the United States and 
speaks uh, in a difficult uh, position. Uh, it puts all of us on how do we answer. Right now, we as healthcare workers, we have to trust that governments would announce that health care uh, facilities, managers, the companies are all going to work together to make sure we have enough uh, personal protective equipment to take care of this sick because they're, com- they're there and they're coming even faster. So the political games between uh, the governments and between the media, we as healthcare professionals, we have to let it on the side and say, you make sure you do your duties under yeah. the law, under workplace laws. You have to provide me as a healthcare worker the proper equipment to do my job. And right now in this pandemic is making sure that I have equipment to protect me against contact, droplets, and airborne. And that's the line in the sand. We would not ask a firefighter to jump into a fire with nothing on. We wouldn't do that. But we're expecting healthcare workers to go into a fire with a little water pistol, and we won't let it happen. A few minutes left with my guest, Linda Silas, head of the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions, star 9898 on your cell is the number to call. Linda, what is the uh, top priority for you right now when you in this stage of this uh, of this virus? And, and do you think the situation varies from from province to province? And we take a look at some of the uh, infection rates in, in British Columbia, for example. It, it seems like, it appears like maybe we're doing a better job here in BC than the rest of the country. But what are your thoughts on how this is being managed across the whole country right now? Uh, my top priority, so your first question, is making sure that nurses, healthcare workers that work in the hot zone, uh, because let's me be clear. We're not asking for every nurse, every doctor, every healthcare worker in Canada to walk around with uh, personal protective equipment or N95 in their back pocket. We're asking for those who are working in the hot zone, which are the zones where uh, COVID-19 patients are going to be hospitalizing, that they're equipped from head to toe and very well trained and very well equipped. For the Does rest it, of the... Yeah, yeah. Uh, for, d- for the... Sorry, go, Mike. Well, I was just going to ask you about the, the situation in individual hospitals. Does the supply chain differ from hospital to hospital? Are you finding that some nurses are complaining about the accessibility of some of these, uh, some of the equipment, and some of the equipment being locked up in hospitals? Yeah. Yeah, so you mentioned British Columbia. British Columbia, Alberta, and Ontario, with their government, have signed agreements uh, with the unions to uh, respect the professional and clinical judgments of the healthcare workforce, which means if I do my risk assessment and I believe that I need a higher level of personal protection equipment, I get it. Now, that's at the macro level. There's still individual healthcare facilities that are locking the PPEs uh, behind closed doors, and and that is frightening, and they are the ones who are creating this fear-mongering reputation. Other provinces, uh, we're working with them. Uh, Saying that Nova Scotia, it looks like they're going to be the first one to come with the best practice around long-term care facilities uh, because they're establishing hot zones just for long-term care also and training and protecting their uh, staff there. So that's that's to come, but it's positive news. Everyone is learning, but we need to learn from each other and and go with the uh, best practices out there. Are frontline healthcare workers in care homes and nursing homes getting less protection than, let's say, frontline healthcare workers in hospitals? Uh, yes, they are. Uh, mostly it's because of the nature of their job. Uh, they uh, don't have the equipment at hand like we would in an acute care hospital sector. They don't have the training at hand. But saying that, after the tragedies that happened both in BC and in uh, Ontario, uh, the nursing home employers and teams are really gearing up fast, just like the uh, best practice that are starting to establish in Nova Scotia. So we're getting encouraged. Uh, You know, we we didn't expect it to hit uh, the long-term care the first 
that's where the strategy started to happen. We were preparing our hospital sector because looking what's happening in Europe, uh, we know that the acute care sector is being hit and hit hard. So we started there. Now there's more of a balance, but we still have a lot of work to do. Linda, thank you for coming on, and thank you to all the brave nurses on the front line who are keeping us safe across the country. Thank you. Thank you. Mike Smith here with you. It's our daily check-in with Keith Baldry, Global News Bureau Chief. Uh, Baldry's Beat, we call it. Keith, thanks for coming in. Morning, Smitty. Okay, so you continue to work full out on this story Mm -hmm. of our lives here as it continues to evolve. And what strikes me is how every day... Uh, we find out new ways the way this thing impacts our lives and the responses from government continue. So one of the things we're looking at closely today is the rollout of this uh, Canada Emergency Response Benefit. Mm-hmm. Today is the first day that people can go online and apply to get this. O- two- only if you're born in January, February, or March. Remember, don't apply if uh, um, if you're born in another month. They don't want to crash the website. Because literally, there's going to be 1.6 million people likely applying for this, and we don't want we really have a a, a bandwidth problem. And so they've they've uh, the federal government has structured this pleading with people: only if you're born in January, February, March do you apply today. If you're born in April, apply tomorrow. Born in July, uh, apply Wednesday, and so forth. It's 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 uh, grouped in in three month portions. Every Trying day. to spread out the number yep. of people going online to apply. So, like you said, they don't crash the website. As, as people look for this money. But, you know, it's extraordinary to watch how this thing has unfolded. Trudeau was asked a really interesting question the other day. It's 2000 bucks a month if you qualify mm-hmm. for this benefit. What if you're working part-time right now and you're, maybe say you're, not, you're only making 1500 bucks a month? Mm-hmm. Why would you keep working? <laughs> like, you can get 2000 a month on this benefit. Yeah. And, and he was asked that the other day, and he was like, hmm, you know, you can sort of see him, the wheels turning in his mind. <laughs> and then today he was like, well, we're going to figure this out. Yeah. Like, they're going to bring in tweaks to the program. He, he mentioned students, gig workers, he mentioned yeah. specifically this morning. So, like, if you're an Uber driver or whatever, you would be covered potentially on this thing. Students, a lot of people are saying, what about students? Have they been left out? He said again this morning, if you're a student and now you can't get a summer job, uh, we're going to have something for you soon. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's just like this never seems to... It's like every day there's new programs. Well, we're in a whole d- new world here. We've never been through something like this before. And so these new programs are going to get tweaked constantly because uh, people will spot... There's such a rush for governments to come up with something, and literally overnight. And you don't see some of the loopholes until they they stare at you in the face after the light of day has been shone on them. So you're going to see tweaks. You're going to see changes. Uh, there's a desperation out there already... Uh, the wage subsidy, uh, the 75% wage subsidy program is not going to be in effect for some time. Businesses are, some people are going crazy saying, no, this is too, you're waiting too long. We need this money now. So there's a real urgency on government to get these, these, uh, aid packages out the door without crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. And that's, that's what we're seeing right now. Let's listen to a couple of Justin Trudeau clips here. The second clip, Greg, and the rundown there, Trudeau. Here's Trudeau talking about this Canada emergency response benefit. If you're born in January, February, or March, you can go to Canada.ca and apply online. If you can't apply online, don't worry. You can call 1-800-959-2041. Since it opened this morning, 240,000 people have already successfully applied. That's Trudeau speaking this morning. That's extraordinary numbers. Wow. I mean, that's not even including probably the West Coast because this is this is an eight fifteen news conference. And remember, it's only people born in those three months. Yeah. No, so, it's, it's like I say, at least probably one and a half million people are going to be applying for this extraordinary benefit. And again, a reminder to people listening, you can't take the wage subsidy and this benefit. It's one or the other. Uh, it's you, you don't get to apply for both. How does the wage subsidy work? Uh, well, the details on that still yet to be rolled out. Yeah, yeah. A company has to prove that it's lost 30% of its revenues. From that's the 75% percent, 75%, yeah. and they have to step in and fill the other 25%. Yeah. But uh, you can't benefit from that program and also benefit from this uh, emergency benefit program. Right. Okay, we got an, a great segment coming up later in the show. So if you have questions about these programs and who doesn't, like how to apply, who qualifies, how much money is available, when will you get the money, uh, mm-hmm. make sure you stick around for the whole show today because at 11 o'clock, we'll have a phone-in segment and have an expert on the on the line to answer all your questions on that. Here's Trudeau again, Keith, talking about uh, 
something that we just touched on briefly here, people who might fall between the cracks here and might mm-hmm. not qualify for this emergency benefit. Here's Trudeau. If you're working reduced hours, down to 10 hours a week or less, we will soon announce how you will be able to qualify for the CERB. This is to help you if you're a gig worker, a contract worker, or a volunteer firefighter. Everybody into the pool here. He yep. just wants to cover everybody. Yeah, nobody wants to be left behind here. Uh, it's an extraordinary program. Uh, you know, $2,000 a month isn't going to cut it for many people, but it, yeah. but it certainly is going to, I think... Uh, cover a, a lot of expenses that people are staring at suddenly. I mean, we've got a huge job loss in this country, uh, and the government stepped up to, uh, to provide some relief here. But again, you know, it's it's interesting that they've they've I think they've recognized the problem they've had before because I know people who've been trying to, for example, go online. Federal websites in the last month or so have just been completely overwhelmed with people trying to access employment insurance and this type of thing. Uh, now they've taken steps to ensure, I'm, I'm sure they've got a lot more people on that 1-800 call than they would have uh, before. And now you've got uh, a website where people are being asked to apply in, in incremental steps that just people born in January, February, March apply today. Uh, the next three months you apply tomorrow and, and so on. So it's, uh, I think they're, I want to say making it up as you go along, but we're in a crisis situation where things unfold at a, at a pace that we've never seen in our lives. Speed is of the essence, and you, you raised this point earlier that, and this is one of the things that, that Trudeau had recognized, I think, early on, is that when you got a crisis like this, you need an injection and infusion of capital into the system quickly. Very quickly. And so one of the elements of this program is to get money into people's hands mm-hmm. fast. And this is something that he had- So they can spend said, it. Right. So you can get out there and remain solvent and spend money and keep the economy afloat until we get beyond this nightmare. Um one of the things I'm going to be watching for closely, I guess, in the days ahead is how accessible is this cash? So when people go on this website and they apply, uh, do you got to go through some kind of red tape or bureaucratic nonsense to get the money? Or is it a very well, simple declaration online and you get the money fast? I, I was on the website yesterday. I uh, didn't go through everything, but it seemed to be very well structured that it anticipated a lot of questions that people were having. Do, you know, do, how do, do I qualify? How do I qualify? Trudeau has mentioned you can you can actually uh, sign up for direct deposit and you're going to get your money within three to five days. Yeah, uh, right. and it's once a month. Uh, it's five hundred dollars a week, but it's paid out in in four week intervals for sixteen weeks. So two thousand dollars will arrive in your bank account within three to five days. You can you can also apply to have it mailed to you. I uh, frankly I would advise a direct deposit because who knows what's going to happen with the mail service in this country. But um, you can have that and that would uh, arrive within ten days. So they seem to have thought out some some potential. Uh, glitches in the system in a way that probably wasn't thought out if this was a month ago. I want to get your take on the quarantine measures in Canada, and Trudeau talked briefly about this. Let me ask you this real quick first before we do that. Did you watch the Queen? I did. And her address? I want to get your take on it, because I thought it was I thought it was pretty pitch perfect. Oh, it was it was spot on. Here's here's Queen Elizabeth. I also want to thank those of you who are staying at home, thereby helping to protect the vulnerable and sparing many families the pain already felt by those who have lost loved ones. Together we are tackling this disease, and I want to reassure you that if we remain united and resolute, then we will overcome it. Okay, uh, I thought it was pretty much pitch perfect. Very uplifting. Yeah, and it was historic. Like you could, you're, We're watching it, and I was thinking like, wow, it's amazing that she she referenced a a similar address that she made in the 1940s mm-hmm. with her sister princess margaret to try and uplift children who had been evacuated during the blitz well, and it just kind of sort of brought everything together i, I think many people liken the situation we're in right now to being on a war footing I mean, yeah. we have this silent killer out there it's a virus but it's upended the economy. It's upended people's lives in a way we've never seen since World War II. We're in the biggest crisis since World War II. So it's appropriate that the Queen would give an address like this because it is a wartime address. And I think it was very uplifting, uh, a big morale booster, not only for, for Britain, but for the rest of the Commonwealth. And I would suspect a lot of Americans might not admit this, but they probably watched it as well and, and probably had their spirits lifted as well. Baldry's beat with my guest Keith Baldry. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Uh, just before you take some calls, Keith, 
Uh, let's talk about uh, briefly about an issue I know you, you're focused on here, and that is the quarantine measures. So if someone comes back from Canada, let's say this, the spring breakers coming home, the, the snowbirds coming back to Canada, are they getting... Are they going into quarantine? Are they getting the proper messages at the airport on the quarantine requirements? Here is Trudeau talking about quarantine measures. From the very beginning, there was a, a number of measures that we took on uh, returning flights from uh, from Wuhan, for example, on uh, flights coming back from uh, from various cruises uh, where we had mandatory quarantines in centers. Uh, we have uh, facilities available for people who are returning to Canada and for various reasons cannot uh, quarantine themselves at home or home is too far uh, from the airport. Uh, that is why we have uh, institutions in place and those are being used your thoughts institutions in place very interesting yeah. uh, so what does that mean? i've assumed that means vacant hotels near airports yeah. we haven't confirmed that at yvr yet uh, but uh, one assumes that some of these hotels are going to be used as quarantine places i have talked to bc health minister adrian dix who's about this he's quite he's quite concerned about this uh you go to global affairs canada website uh, as of last Friday, there were something like 390,000 people uh, who had registered with Global Affairs who are overseas right now, who need to self-isolate when they come home. The concern from B.C. and from other provincial jurisdictions, because there's, there's four entry points, Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, Montreal. Yeah. Those are the airports that are open to international flights, apparently, although I th- seem to see a Kelowna uh, airport arrivals has a, a daily flight coming in from Seattle, so I don't know what that's about. But the concern is these people get off these planes and are just basically held to the honor system that they go home and self-isolate, which is great, but there's no guarantee they're going to do that. And so do these people get taken from YVR, from Pearson Airport, and and forcibly put into quarantine in local hotels or, as Mr. Trudeau calls it, institutions, which he has he, he not defined? So that's the concern because uh, I think Adrian Nixon and Dr. Bonnie Henry's concern is all the work that's been done so far in B.C., and it's been quite impressive, the social distancing we're seeing, people are practicing this, does it, and we've had a very low infection rate, a low hospitalization rate, uh, and a low death rate. It's been confined largely to care homes, long-term care homes. Does that get undone now because you've got literally hundreds of thousands of people flooding back into the country who may bring it with them the virus and they don't self-isolate? Okay, here's the number to call, 604-280-9898, star 9898, toll free on your cell. Paul on the open line, hi. Hi, I just wanted to refer to what you were talking about, uh, a, a person working part-time and not making $2,000 in that month, but getting yeah. the $2,000. I, I believe in some cases, as is if you had children, if a wife is at home doing the schooling, she's basically a teacher now. Like in my household, we've got the whiteboard up and scheduled for three kids. She, she is actually doing a lot more work, and, she, and she's unable to work because she has to be at home. So it, I don't think it really matters that they're getting the $2,000. I think the government has to realize that their wives or husbands that are at home that are, are taking on a lot and not getting a break, and that could, could go towards, you know, maybe buying a laptop or maybe if something, a printer, more ink for the printer or whatnot. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's a big issue if you have children. I, I was wondering about your guys' thought on okay. that. Okay, Keith? Well, I, I think you're going to see the federal government be fairly generous here in their interpretation of who's eligible. I think the goal right now is to get everybody back on their feet as quickly as possible, as much as possible. And I don't think you're going to see a real crackdown on the rules here. Uh, I think there's going to be loopholes that... You know, people can exploit sometimes for the wrong reasons, but also just to to adjust to their as as the caller points out. Um, you know, people people are in a different situation. I don't think you're going to see this rigid uh, enforcement of really tightly defined rules when it comes to this benefit. I think the government just wants to get the money out the door. Right. I'm just taking a look at the at the government's website and who's eligible for this benefit. And you got to be 15 years old, reside in Canada, and you've stopped working because of COVID-19. It says you have not voluntarily quit your job. Yep. So it's like it's not like well, I think I'll quit my job and take two thousand bucks a month for nothing instead. I, but right. I, think, I mean, I, you got you got to be have lost your job because of the virus. But I think it's also right? going to be an honor system here. I don't yeah. think they've got the the resources or the time or the care to really double check whether you're not you're fifteen or fourteen and a half or whether or not you've earned five thousand dollars in the last year or you know forty five hundred dollars. It's it's there's a lot of you know, you're going to have to check off a few boxes here, but I don't think there's going to be a lot of uh, 
yeah. double-checking whether or not you're correct. Let's go to Eileen. Hi. Oh, hi. hi. Um, I'm just um, wondering, because I've already applied for EI, and I have not got any answers back. So I, it's under my understanding that it will already go to the CERB application. Yeah, so- Go, go to the website, Canada.ca, and find find your way to this particular um, portion of the website. That it, Those questions are actually answered there. There's a question, what happens if I'm on EI? Uh, what, uh, it, so there's a lot of detail there on the website that should answer uh, concerns such as the ones you, that you've raised. It's a, it's a, it's a fairly well-thought-out website. Yeah, and we're going to have, a, like I just plugged the segment we got coming up too, at the, uh, so an hour from now, at like 11 o'clock, uh, we'll have an expert on the line. And there'll be lots of opportunity for people to phone in because you know that there are just tons of people out there who've got questions about how this thing is going to work. Hi, Bob. Hi. I was wondering if, Keith, if you could find out for me or you might already know what's going to happen in July, around July 4th, when we all get our our corporate tax notices, for example, from the city of Burnaby. I've got a couple of buildings in in Lake City and uh, those tenants that I have, and they're multinational tenants, large people are saying they're not paying any uh, rent for the foreseeable future. So I wonder if you've heard whether they're going to back off that July 4th and take it to, let's say, October the 4th or whatever. Do you know anything about that? 30 seconds. Not anything specific. My rule of thumb, though, is that everything is fluid right now. Never assume that everything is locked in place. Uh, Governments and municipalities and, and governments at all levels are changing the rules, relaxing the rules. Uh, and giving people as much space as possible to get through this. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say anything's locked in place right now, but I don't know that for sure. Thanks for coming on. Talk to you tomorrow. That is Keith Baldry, Global News Bureau Chief of the Legislature, and that is Baldry's Beat. Let's talk about the original epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic now, Wuhan, China, and how the government of China has managed and reported on this disease, the influence that China wields over the World Health Organization in particular, and how all of this has impacted the outbreak and the management of the COVID-19 virus around the world. My guest is Terry Glavin, a journalist and columnist, The National Post, The Ottawa Citizen, McLean's Magazine. I highly recommend his latest for McLean's. I just tweeted it out, so give me a follow on Twitter there. You'll find the link there. Terry, thanks a lot for coming on. Well, it's nice to to talk to you, Mike. Appreciate it a lot. Let's talk about where this uh, disease first erupted in uh, Wuhan, China, and what do you think is the impact of how this disease has been managed and spread around the world, given that it started in China and the way the Chinese government managed the outbreak and what they told the world about it? Well, that's a heck of a story. Um, I, we can hone it, uh, focus it down a little closer to... Um, Let's take what uh, Patty had you said last Thursday and how she treated the uh, uh, question uh, from a journalist at the press conference. Uh, well, I'll, about, I'll tell you what. Uh, I'll tell you what, Terry. I've I've got that. I've got that clip right now. So oh, why, don't, why don't we listen to that? So this is the federal. I got two clips here. This is the federal health minister Patty Haidu, as you mentioned, talking about the the data, the statistics, the information coming out of China and the reliance by Canada and other countries around the world on it. Here she is talking about that. I would say that your question is feeding into the conspiracy theories that many people have been perpetuating on the on the internet. And it's important to remember that there is no way to beat a global pandemic if we're actually not willing to work together as a globe. We will have to come up with a global solution to this virus. No country is an island. And I am so proud of the Canadian researchers that are part of the World Health Organization Solidarity Project that are working on developing vaccines and treatments for this virus um, that uh, undoubtedly are going to be a big part of the solution about how we all get ourselves out of the situation. Okay, this is talking about whether the information coming out of China, if we question it, that that's some sort of conspiracy theory in her answer to a reporter's question. So there's what she said, Terry. What do you think? Well, it's. I'll be very, very honest with you, Mike. I mean, you know, we're both, uh, we've both been in the journalism racket for years. And, uh, uh, you know, at a time like this, and I can, I've confessed this publicly, you know, I've held back 
Because at a time like this, in a crisis like this, particularly when, you know, defeating the enemy, if you like, requires an, an extraordinary degree of, of social mobilization, or curiously, in this case, immobilization, trust in government is the most valued public good available to us, okay? And so I have been reluctant to be too tough on uh, the health minister and 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 Dr. Tam and uh, and the prime minister and so on. But I, I, last Thursday, I think this was just an absolutely atrocious uh, uh, display of arrogance and misdirection. In in and and paradoxical uh, because it's actually China that is the most uh, productive source of conspiracy theories being circulated out there. She was responding to a very innocent question. You know, all these intelligence agencies around the world, particularly uh, the, the Five Eyes community, the CIA in the United States, are saying that China has been underreporting uh, the infection rate and the infection data, the volume, the, the numbers. And that's how she responded to that reporter's question. And here's yeah. another an astonishing paradox. It is a matter of public record that China has been significantly underreporting the number of infections in Wuhan and Hubei from the beginning. And it, it's even more ironic here is that Four days before Paddy Hyde, you made that statement. The Chinese government itself, it was Wang Yi and it was Premier Li Keqiang, had ordered the health authorities to stop underreporting because there had been riots in China about the underreporting and because of China's reputation around the world was shattered. The, what they were doing, and the South China Morning Post has done a very good job on this because they actually found, got, got a got a hold of some internal Chinese government data. The Chinese government was not counting asymptomatic cases. In other words, if you show up, if you're tested, you don't really have any of the symptoms. You might have a little bit of a temperature, uh, but you nonetheless test positive for uh, the um, COVID-19 disease. Uh, you weren't counted. And the, the data that the South China Morning Post got suggested that in, in, instead of uh, the 800, what was it, 85,000 infections, I think they were reporting at the time, it was more like 120,000, okay? Now, subsequently, uh, the, they, they've started to count asymptomatic cases, and even those numbers don't add up. But to suggest that uh, there's something conspiratorial about merely questioning yeah. The, the you know Chinese data is is absolutely unacceptable. I mean it's it's gross. And as a journalist, you know to 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 see my my health minister behave like that at a press conference to question uh, and 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 to make that awful insinuation uh, about a journalist doing his job, and then subsequently to see the European Union editor of uh, China Daily, which is. Uh, a, a propaganda sheet. It's directly owned by the propaganda department of the Chinese Communist Party, praising uh, our health minister and dismissing Canadian journalists as mischief makers and and uh, and paparazzi. I mean, there's 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 a number of things that it's really important for us to get straight here, and it's not about the blame game, and you know. You talk about China, and the next thing you know, saying, "Yeah, what about Donald Trump?" Well, we all know, yeah. we all know that. We all know Donald Trump's and what he says can't be relied on. That what we really need to do, I think, is, and I hope that the federal government will very, very quickly begin to level with us about just how badly we were misled by the World Health Organization. Now. You can make excuses for the World Health Organization. You can make the case that they couldn't get into China, and they couldn't for weeks, um, unless they sort of, uh, you know, slobbered on Xi Jinping's slippers a little bit. Uh, they wouldn't allow the Centers for Disease Control into China. Um, they, they couldn't get access to data. The Chinese were ordering lab laboratories to destroy evidence. Uh, you know, this, it's 
This is public record. This is what happened. And so, you know, the the whole the travel ban, for instance. Now, I've been tracking, uh, and it's 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 pretty it's pretty dense stuff. But it's the genomic. Uh, there's a there's, there's a open source um, effort by public laboratories all over the world that have been uh, identifying the genomic sequence of the virus itself. You can actually trace its family tree. Uh, its uh, phylogeny is the term. And, and what that shows is that while we were being told by the World Health Organization and by our own government that, oh, you know, travel bans, they don't help, it's not really a good idea, uh, you know, it's uh, all this sort of thing, you can trace and track the trajectory of the coronavirus around the world and how it got into Canada. It came straight from China. Sometimes it came through Iran because Mahan Airways was flying back and forth to Shenzhen uh, for weeks after the, uh, the, the virus erupted in, in China. Uh, and I think they had direct flights from Shanghai and Wuhan as well. So you can actually trace how the stuff got into Canada in, re- in, 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 time, in, in time sequence. And so while Canadians were being told that flight restrictions were a bad idea, you know, it was 80 countries had basically shut down travel before Canada did. And so the question is, why, why was it allegedly such a yeah. bad idea? Okay. Here's what I, let me let me play another clip for you here, Terry. Speaking of Terry Glavin from the National Post and McLean's Magazine, we're talking about China and whether we can rely on the data coming out of there on the COVID nineteen pandemic. One of the things that Patty Haidu, uh, the federal health minister, has emphasized, Terry, is that China is not the only source of data, statistics, reports that Canada and our partners in the World Health Organization are relying on as we go forward in fighting this virus she said we're looking she says they're looking at data from everywhere so let's play that other other clip there uh, greg you got from patty haidu the federal health minister here she is there's no indication that the data that came out of china uh, in terms of their infection rate and their death rate uh, was falsified in any way in fact uh, if you look at the death rate uh, overall in china it's much higher than the one we're seeing now um, and so we we rely on the world health organization to do this important work because of course we're all in this together and i think one of the most important things to understand about this pandemic this global pandemic is that as long as coronavirus exists in one country it exists in all of our countries that we actually have to work collectively as a world now to defeat this virus, to find better ways to treat and then eventually prevent this virus through vaccination or other kinds of methods. And that's going to take everybody working together. Okay, you heard her say off the bat there, Terry, no evidence that China has falsified their data. Is that true? Well, I guess you could deconstruct the word falsify. I mean, is it falsification if you deliberately exclude uh, information to deliberately exclude data, misrepresent data, uh, and misdirect uh, the the obvious conclusions that will be drawn from the data. Uh, she might be able to acquit herself in a court uh, because of the word falsify. Uh, but we were misdirected. The, the data was underreported. Data reporting was delayed. And and you know the other thing you keep hearing is well you know. Uh, blame game. Oh, we should. We're all in this together, and all this sort of thing. I, you know, this isn't about you know going out of our way to blame anyone. This is just telling the truth. Where the hell did this thing come from? How did it get here? How is it spreading? Okay. What is? What are its characteristics? You know, are masks good or bad? <laughs> I mean, you know, just. I think the government is is uh, the, the key thing to understand here about how we got into this. Hey, Terry, as we take a close look at uh, China and whether they have been straight with the world about what they knew and when they knew it about the coronavirus, I, I wonder if you, I, I sometimes hear from people who say to me, and I got a couple of text messages and tweets about this just during the break, does it really matter now uh, whether China lied about, about this virus at, at the start? when this thing is now spread around the world? And shouldn't we be more concerned about the numbers out of Italy or Germany or South Korea or especially the United States? Like, how, how does it matter if China lied about right. it at this point? That's a reasonable question. Yeah. 
Um, and I and I would say that it does in this respect. If you want to understand anything about this, you have to know where it came from and how it got here. That's the first thing. The second thing is, and I'll make this point again: the, the you know the, the necessity of public trust in in our politicians, in our leadership, in our public institutions. Um, at the federal level, I'm afraid it's pretty well shot. If you have the the, the you know <laughs> our health minister who's repeating this stuff over and over and over again, um, which everybody knows to be untrue, um, or or certainly you know there's a d- tremendous degree of sort of shell game operations going on in Ottawa. Um, it's very true that we're relying on the World Health Organization for data. It's also very true that the World Health Organization relies on China for Chinese data. So, you know, the the key thing, and this is why it matters in the long term when we're looking forward, um, is is that there are two things, and I'm going to go back to this February 3rd speech that Xi Jinping gave to the Politburo. It was a decision that was made very early, probably January 7th, by the looks of it. The priority for China, and they kind of strong-armed the World Health Organization and everybody else. We know that to be true. You know, not cooperating and so on. And as I say, you know, maybe you can mount a defense of the World Health Organization having to spread all this nonsense around just to get into China. But the priority, it was twofold. The first direction was we can't allow China to be closed off from the world. We have to keep the air lanes open. We cannot tolerate anybody stopping flights from China. The economic consequences would be devastating. We have a 20-year plan and a 10-year plan. We've got to get the gross domestic product up to $13.1 trillion, uh, and we can't let anything get in the way. So we have to keep air lanes open, okay? And the second was an emphasis on what translates uh, 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 into the English as diplomacy pub propaganda, all right? And, and, and so we've been subjected to both. And if you look at all the statements that were made, uh, you know, by, by the health authorities in Ottawa and the minister about the, tra- the issue of travel, there's actually no public health objective. They're supposed to be concentrating on public health. There was no public health objective to be achieved whatsoever by keeping those airlines open. Let me ask you, Terry, Terry, let me ask you this real quickly as we just have one minute left here. Don't we have to play ball with China, though? I mean, we can criticize them, but don't we rely on them not only for our larger economy and our G- the GDP, as you mentioned, and all the interlinked trade between the two countries, but also they supply us medical supplies, right? So don't we have to they've play nice with them? The glo- they've captured the global market in uh, medical supplies. Most right. uh, pharmaceuticals, most personal protective devices, masks, ventilators were being produced in China before this uh, erupted. There's no question that in the short term, and maybe even the immediate term, we're going to have to put up with a lot of crap from China because they have cornered the market, okay? okay. In the longer term, uh, no. 4% of our exports go to China. Uh, all the stuff that we're importing from China, we can get from somebody else. Okay, The wider strategy and the lesson here is decouple, decouple from the, 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 the China trade racket. Terry, thanks for coming on. Okay, Mike. You bet. Thank you. Terry Glavin. You can check out his stuff in the National Post, the Ottawa Citizen, McLean's Magazine. All right. Welcome back to the show as we continue our focus on analysis on the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's talk about how the Vancouver Parks Board is managing the virus in our public spaces. Daisy Chen is the Director of Recreation for the Vancouver Park Board. Daisy, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me, Mike. A lot of people are worried about people who continue to flout the physical distancing requirements, especially if they see people hanging out in parks, and maybe people might think they're getting too close together and it's too much of a risk for the spread of the virus. How is the Vancouver Park Board handling that? Well, we uh, initiated a uh, Park Champion program. It's basically a public awareness uh, program to help remind the public of uh, physical distancing while using our parks and beaches. It's uh, pretty much an added layer of uh, public education, really focused on on uh, supporting the public and using our spaces in a safe and respect uh, respectful way by using social etiquette and common courtesies. Okay, so how does that work? You send people out into the parks just to remind people or give them warnings? What? 
Uh, well, we're, we've got people out there basically chatting with people and reminding them of uh, having that two-meter distance and, and to be polite, uh, you know, when they're uh, out in our parks, and especially when we've got joggers and walkers and bikers all using uh, pretty much the same pathways in and on our uh, English Bay and Stanley Park and busy parks and, and beaches. Are you getting any complaints from people who say they visited a park in Vancouver and they're doing their best to social distance, but maybe other people are not? You know, our initial feedback over the weekend, Mike, is, uh, you know, we had great uh, support from the public. Um, However, though, uh, we do uh, want to emphasize, especially to runners and joggers, that it would be helpful for them to maintain a physical distance of two meters and possibly even consider changing up their routine and maybe go during non-peak times or visit other neighborhood parks instead of the more popular locations. I think that if we can get everybody helping out in that respect, uh, we will... We'll have everyone sort of at a safe uh, distance and be able to enjoy out the outdoor areas. Yeah, this is a challenge for sure, especially where people are out for a run. And I'm a runner myself, so this is something that I'm trying to keep top of mind myself. If I'm out for mm-hmm. a jog or something, if I see someone coming toward me on the sidewalk toward me, I'm giving that person a wide berth. Like I'm going well, well outside of their area onto the road if I have to, if it's safe, in order to, you know, don't get near people because, Mm -hmm. you know, this is what people don't want people getting in their space. So, I mean, when you mentioned that in the more popular areas that this is maybe a more particular problem, which are the, what are the more popular parks where that might be a hazard? Uh, I'm really sort of uh, emphasizing the Stanley Park seawall. There's particular choke points around that seawall. And again, it would be super helpful if people uh, reconsider uh, those locations and maybe going to uh, spots that they can run and and give that sort of wide berth that you're referring to, Mike. Um, We know when the sun's out and we've got an enormous amount of people that want to come down to, you know, the English Bay area and Stanley Park that uh, we've got a number of challenges as especially when they're wanting to go around that seawall area. And as you know, there are certain narrow points. And so oh, yeah. if we do have runners that, you know, really want to get their, you know, daily sort of uh, jog or run in, uh, please think about going to those uh, other parts of the city or parts of their neighborhood that they can get their runs in without actually placing themselves or others in, in sort of that unsafe uh, distance. Yeah, uh, I mean, the seawall is probably the nicest run in Vancouver, you know, so, so for someone who's a runner sure. or a jogger, obviously they, they want to get out there, And but I know what you mean, I mean, having run around the seawall many times, mm-hmm. it's like, there's a lot of areas there where, you know, you got no choice, really, if you get sort of pitched in on a, exactly. on a narrow path, yeah. Exactly, yeah. and, you know, most of the runners, they have, you know, their, their uh, music on, and so they're really focused on their run and I can certainly appreciate that it's just that uh, you know in this time and you know during this period it's really important for us to think about you know who they're impacting when they go on those uh, daily runs okay speaking of Daisy Chen she's the director of recreation for the Vancouver Park Board what you mentioned cyclists as well is that also a problem becoming a problem uh, I think, again, as the nice weather uh, comes upon us, uh, we do have more and more people sort of riding their bikes around. And, again, it's the same kind of premise. They they need to really think about the route that they're going on and uh, whether it starts to narrow at certain points. And so, again, you know, the, the seawall areas around Stanley Park, there's going to be locations around that park which are not recommended for them to go along. They either need to get off their bikes and, and wait until there's, uh, you know, enough distance between people before they can pass. Okay, you mentioned the uh, the program that the Park Board has rolled out here, the Park Board Champions Program, and as I as I understand, there have been more than a thousand. Ad, ad, what do you call them? A warning, an advisory, a reminder? Like, what do you call this when people are reminded keep your distance? Yeah, so we have our park rangers who have issued more than fourteen hundred warnings to park right. and beach user groups. But our park board champions, as I mentioned, is more regarding the education and and trying to speak with the public about um, you know reminding them of the common courtesies. You know, our rangers are are you know they're doing a great job in terms of um, looking at enforcement and and being more of a physical presence in terms of making sure people are aware of the provincial health officer's directives of the two-meter distance. But again, this Park Ranger Champions program is more of a public awareness program that we want to, you know, speak with the people about trying to support our efforts in in getting that physical distance between themselves when they're out and about. Okay, when people get a warning, 
what is their reaction typically? What what have you heard from your people? Are, are people angry to get the warning, or do they go, oh, okay, I forgot about that. I'll I'll make sure I do better. Uh, I think it's a mixed bag, uh, Mike. You know, for for the most part, I think most people are aware of uh, the fact that uh, you know there's this we're in a pandemic and that we're asking people to uh, physically distance themselves. And so, you know, most people are, are aware of it and certainly uh, understand why we're, we're trying to, uh, um, impo- you know, um, impress the issue of, of why it's so important at this time. Right. Um, what is, what is next here for you? What about the signage? You guys got lots of signs around reminding people what the rules are? Yes, we do. I think we've got up to about 5,000 signs in uh, our parks and beaches. And so, uh, you know, with the signage, uh, along with the uh, Park Board Champions, uh, along with social messaging, we're hoping to get the message out. And of course, you know, through your efforts, uh, we're wanting people to to remember uh, it's important for you to physically distance while you're outside uh, enjoying our parks and beaches at this time. Are parks still open? Are all the parks still open or have you closed any of them down? No, they're still open at this okay. time. Uh, we, you know, we, we're doing our efforts in terms of making sure that people understand how to use them safely and respectfully. Right, right. And you want to keep the parks open, right? I mean, we don't want to get to a situation where we're shutting parks down. We don't, and that's why it's important for us to uh, be out yeah. there and making sure that people are, are aware that, uh, you know, they're important to people in, in terms of getting out there and enjoying the fresh air, but we also want them to be uh, safely using them. Daisy, thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Continue our coverage and analysis of the COVID-19 pandemic south of the border in the United States. The COVID-19 pandemic is helping to stimulate the underground economy. And I, I mean that literally. I'm talking about people who decide to buy an emergency shelter, an underground quarantine shelter during the pandemic. Let's check in now with Ron Hubbard from Atlas Survival Shelters in Texas. Ron, it's nice to talk to you again. Thanks for having me on your show. Okay, Ron, I remember talking to you a few years ago on the radio. At that time, there were fears of a nuclear war between the United States and North Korea. And I know your business was booming back then. But I I understand that business has been booming again for you here because of this virus. What's going on? Well, what's going on is people are just looking for it. They're saying, you know what, it got us every two or three years or some kind of a, a scare that could basically wipe out humanity as we know it. And people just want to take out some life insurance in the form of a, of a safe room. No different than several countries all make it mandatory, like Switzerland, Finland, uh, Israel, Singapore. I mean, you go to those countries, everybody already has a safe room with an air system. So it's an elective process here in the U.S. and Canada. So people are just saying, you know what, when I build my next house, I'm going to, instead of putting in a basement, I'm going to put in a safe cellar. And you may say, what's a safe cellar? Well, a safe cellar is a pre-manufactured drop-in basement that's watertight, skin-tight, but it has all the air pipes, it has the air system, and it has a gas-tight door that will make the shelter hermetically sealed, basically. So you could go into that shelter in case it were, there was an airborne pandemic, meaning lighter than air. So typically these pandemics are just passed from sneezing or from one person to the other, which wouldn't travel more than, let's say, 5 to 10 to 20 feet. No one really knows. But, you know, I heard today even up to 23 feet now. But the other day it was 6 feet. But the point is people just want to have what's called a plan B. They want to know where they're going to go when the next disaster strikes. Now, that disaster may be a tornado at night, and they're like, let's just take the family, go down the bunker, and we're going to spend the night in the bunker and watch TV down in the bunker. So in that case, they feel like they're in a guest room. It may be an incoming hurricane. It may be people worried about uh, a kidnapping down in Mexico. It may be worried about uh, uh, farmers having their uh, farms raided in South Africa. But the demand for shelters worldwide is skyrocketing right now because people want to know where they're going to go. Now, I was thinking about that earlier today. I've had a company uh, in California. I have one in Texas, too. But I've had one in California for 20 years, and I have 17 vehicles. And I have never made one insurance claim on paying insurance on 17 vehicles. So I pay about $25,000 a year in auto insurance for 20 years. That's a half million dollars I have paid out in insurance over 20 years 
yet I, I brag about it. She's like, yeah, I'm so proud of you because you, you're the one guy who never makes a claim. Even if I wreck one slightly, I never make a claim. So I spent out a half million dollars on auto insurance in 20 years, yet I have nothing to complain about. So people need to look at it that way. The only insurance you can take out to protect your family from a lot of disasters is to have a safe place to go. You know, but every year the thing is I don't remember going, damn, I wish I wouldn't have bought that insurance. So instead, you know what I do is I pony up and I pay it again. So hey, Ron. people hey, got to look at it from that perspective. Is your business all domestic there in the United States, or do you ship some of your like you do business with? You got customers in British Columbia, don't you? It is it is the hottest spot in Canada right now to do bunkers really? by far. I have I have two shipping up there very soon, uh, and I keep getting the two customers mixed up because they both bought the identical bunker. But no, I do shelters in Canada. I mean, I actually live in Saskatchewan uh, three months out of the year, so. I guess I'm 25% Canadian, eh? Uh, but um, no, it's my second home. It's in Canada, but it up. Do you got a bunker yourself? I mean, you're the president of the company. Are you also a client? Of course I do. Of course I got okay. a bunker. Yeah, I was my first client. <laughs> so yeah, I've got a bunker on a, a ranch in Texas on 6,000 acres, and I put it in in like 2011 or 12. I can't remember when I did it, but... Uh, I'm kind of jealous now because all these bunkers I'm making for all these other people, they're bigger and they're better. So I want a new bunker. So how I'm going to build me a new. Go ahead. How much does a bunker cost? Well, they average about $100,000 to get a Whoa. bunker that feels like you got a big RV uh, trailer or a big, you know, uh, a two-bedroom house underground. So, I mean, my bunker has a master bedroom that has eight bunks in this second bedroom. It has a full kitchen, a living room, a den, dinner table, entertainment center, desk with cameras and monitors. It's got a bathtub. Mine has a bathtub with a shower in it. Uh, then it's got a bathroom with a vanity and a, and a toilet. So it's got everything you'd have in a two-bedroom apartment. It's just mine's 20 feet underground. How, mu- how, long could you, hatch. how long could you stay down there if you had to? Well, I could stay down as long as I got food, water, and power. I mean, if you got right. those three things, you can stay down there as long as you want. So... Um, realistically, uh, for nuclear fallout, you don't really need to stay down there any longer than 28 days. Realistically, you could come out in probably two to two to seven days, depending on the uh, the potency of the fallout. Um, is why you have radiation detectors to tell you how many Rinkins your body would be absorbing if you came out of the shelter, and then you could still come out. Uh, is just you got to limit yourself to the time and the radiation. The worst thing that's going on right now is this uh, COVID-19 virus. If 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 a uh, if a if a virus goes airborne, now I am not a super expert on on uh, pandemics. I'll tell you that right now. But I have had quite a few experts call me and try to educate me in the last month. One of them was called a bacteriologist, and he called me just two or three days ago. It was explaining some things to me about you know about getting lighter than air and, and explaining to me what anthrax would do. There's a lot worse things out there that could wipe out uh, pretty much all of all of the human population if it became airborne. And when I say airborne, I mean it's like it's in the wind like pollen. It would travel for miles, and if you breathe it and there's no antibody or, or no uh, no cure for it, it would kill everybody. So if that ever happened, you would want to take yourself into an airtight environment. And the sad thing is because the, the other doctor who called me said that you'd want to stay in there at least 90 days. And I'm like, good God, 90 days in a bunker? Boy, you better make sure that thing does feel like a house down there. That's why you better have a lot of storage and just, you know, a lot of things that make it feel like a normal house. And so okay. that's what I've been trying to do is create shelters that feel like home. Ron, speaking to Ron Hubbard from Atlas Survival Shelters, Ron, we just got one minute left. How much has your business gone up with this pandemic? Oh, it's, it's skyrocketing. Matter of fact, I have a YouTube channel called Atlas Survival Shelters. I went from getting 25,000 views a day to getting a half million views a day. So Whoa. my YouTube channel is blowing up right now. So people are very interested. Do you think, do, do some people look at you and think like, oh man, this guy's crazy. He's like a prepper. I am a prepper, man. We look <laughs> like geniuses right now. I mean, we're, we're the ones laughing. If you want to buy uh, survival food, you got a two month waiting list. Um, preppers, let me tell you what. This is my personal opinion. This is not the big one. This COVID-19 is not the big one. This is a warning shot across the world's bow. The big one is coming. It's, so many people agree with me, but this was a, 
it shows how bad a shape we're going to be when it is the big one. We ha- still have an experience of Spanish flu. It killed 65 million people. This thing may end up killing 100,000 people. But in the same time, it killed 100,000 people. 300,000 people died from cancer. And I don't see the country stopping and picking up cigarettes to prevent people from dying from smoking. So I okay. think it's a little overplayed, but uh, that's just my opinion. Hey, Ron, thanks for coming on. Okay. You bet. Thank right. you. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. Did he Thank cut you. me off at some point, or did <laughs> I get to get my last word in? Uh, what, what's your last word? you got 20 seconds. You want to make it. Oh, am I still on the air? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, hey, listen, guys, go check out my YouTube channel, Atlas Survival okay. Shelters, and follow me on YouTube. All right. All right, All right, Ron. All right, thanks, man. Ron Hubbard, Atlas Survival Shelters. He's doing a booming business. He sells these shelters to British Columbians, too.